I am Professor Edith Brown Weiss from Georgetown University, and it's my great pleasure to deliver the second lecture in the mini-series on international environmental law for the United Nations. In this lecture, we ask, what are the sources of international environmental law? How are they used? And with what effect? I want to turn to the International Court of Justice statute, which lists the traditional sources of public international law. Article 38.1 lists four sources. International conventions or agreements, international customary law, general principles of law, and as subsidiary means, judicial decisions and the teachings of the most highly qualified publicists of the various countries. Under Article 38.2, the court can decide a case at, at exqua et bono if the parties agree. Now, this list of sources was developed for the Permanent Court of International Justice, the predecessor to the Court of International Justice, and it was developed almost a century ago. It's incomplete today. I would argue that sources of international law today also include non-legally binding instruments, or soft law, individualized voluntary commitments, and potentially other sources. International organizations have also developed rules that apply to international environmental problems. In addition, actors other than states have developed various forms of instruments, some of which are binding on them and relevant to international environmental law. Moreover, and importantly, domestic environmental laws may incorporate rules of international law or may extend their domestic environmental law to other areas beyond the state. Now let's turn to the first of these sources of international environmental law, and I would argue the most important one and that is treaties and international agreements. Now, sometimes this, these are referred to as conventions, uh, even protocols sometimes, but they're all international agreements. They have in the past been the most important source of international environmental law. In 2022, there are over 1,300 multilateral environmental agreements, known as MEAs. 2,200 bilateral environmental agreements, and over 200 more environmental agreements between states, international organizations, and other actors, and this is likely an undercount. The agreements cover transnational problems of pollution, global environmental problems such as climate change, protection of the stratospheric ozone layer, natural resource conservation, marine pollution, transnational shipments of hazardous waste, trade in persistent organic uh, pollutants and other chemicals, allocation and use of fresh water and quality of water, and the environmental conditions in the Arctic and in Antarctica. And now we are concerned with environmental pollution of debris in outer space. 
the Vienna Convention on Treaties, which is an international agreement, defines a treaty as, quote, an international agreement concluded between states in written form and governed by international law. Please note that there are three requirements for an international agreement under the Vienna Convention on Treaties. That the agreement be between states, that it be in written form, and that it be governed by international law. While international oral agreements can exist, they're not governed by the Vienna Convention on Treaties. Now the basic rule on treaties is that they are binding on states, or what is known as Pacta Sunt Servanda, Article 26 of the Convention. This means that they can be enforced internationally by states and enforced domestically in the state's court, assuming that the state doesn't require implementing legislation before they can be enforced domestically. Now, a few aspects of treaty law are especially relevant for international environmental law, and hence I would like to flag them today and give them further analysis. First, while a treaty is binding, certain provisions in it may be stated in non-binding terms, such as by the use of the word should instead of shall. This is particularly relevant in the provisions in the 2015 Paris Agreement on Climate Change. Article 4.2 provides that, quote, each party shall prepare, communicate, and maintain successive nationally determined contributions, NDCs, to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. This is binding, and states' parties are in violation of the treaty if they do not submit and maintain the NDCs. Article 4.4 of the agreement provides that, quote, developed countries' parties should continue taking the lead by undertaking economy-wide absolute emission reduction targets. Unquote. While these states have committed to doing this, the failure to do so does not trigger the same legal consequences. So that a binding agreement may have provisions in them that in themselves may not be legally binding and enforceable, depending on the use of the words. Secondly, the preamble to, to an international agreement is very important, but its provisions are not binding on states' party to it. Often obligations that could not be agreed upon in the text of the agreement, for the text of the agreement, are put into the preamble. For example, turning again to the 2015 Paris Agreement on Climate Change, the preamble provides the following, quote, Acknowledging that climate change is a common concern of humankind, parties should, when taking action to address climate change, 
respect, promote, and consider their respective obligations on human rights, the right to health, the rights of indigenous peoples, local communities, migrants, children, persons with disabilities, and people in vulnerable situations, and the right to development, as well as gender equality, empowerment of women, and intergenerational equity. This provision in the preamble covers many of the controversial issues and points that in the end were not included in the text of the agreement. Sometimes doctrines are expressed in the preamble, and the doctrines have broad application, but they aren't included in the binding text. One example is the common, her common heritage of humankind, common concern of humankind, which is found in the preamble of the Convention on Biological Diversity, the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change, and the Paris Agreement of 2015 on Climate Change, as just noted. Thirdly, in public international law, states can take reservations to the application of particular provisions of the agreement when they become a party. This means that a specific provision does not apply to the state taking the reservation, and it is reciprocal uh, between the other states that are parties to the agreement. Now, the consequence of being able to take reservations is that not all states may be bound by all provisions of the agreement. Now, in international environmental law, almost all multilateral environmental agreements do not permit states to take reservations to the agreements. These include the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change, the Convention on Biological Diversity, the Comprehensive UN Law of the Sea Convention, which is a prime example of, a, of an agreement that does not permit reservations, and other agreements. This means that an international environmental law for all MEAs that do not permit reservations, it means that when the states join the agreement, they accept the same obligations. It avoids the problem of a weak link or pollution haven that could defeat the effectiveness of the agreement. And it avoids even a free rider who might get the benefits without paying any of the costs. This is an important aspect of international environmental law. Thirdly, there are questions related to a state becoming a party to an international agreement. For treaties, there is a period of time when the treaty is open for signature by a state. A state may sign the agreement during this period of time and then ratify it later. And it only becomes a party to the agreement when it has ratified the agreement. If a state joins the agreement after the period for signing the agreement has closed, 
it may only accede to the agreement. A one-step process. The question is then, what obligations does a state have if it signs the agreement but has not yet ratified it and has thus not become a party to the agreement? This is relevant for some international environmental agreements. For example, the 1977 Convention prohibiting the military or any other hostile use of environmental modification techniques provides that each state party, quote, undertakes not to engage in military or any other hostile use of environmental modification techniques having widespread, long-lasting, or severe effects as a means of destruction, damage, or injury to any other state party. Some states have signed, but not ratified the agreement. What obligation do they have? Article 18 of the Vienna Convention on Treaties provides that a state, quote, is obliged to refrain from acts which would defeat the object and purpose of a treaty in this case. This provision needs to be interpreted. Does it mean only that a state cannot take actions that would make it impossible for it to comply with the agreement when it becomes a party? Or does it mean that a state cannot take any action that would be inconsistent with the object and purpose of the agreement? Or does it mean something else? Similar questions also arise for the Convention on Biological Diversity. The important point is that signing an international environmental agreement does have some legal consequences for the state. Finally, as we discuss law related to international agreements, the state's party to an international agreement may adopt protocols, annexes, or other instruments that clarify, expand upon, or otherwise develop the provisions of the agreements. Sometimes these may constitute a separate agreement which states must join. The Montreal Protocol to the Convention on the Stratospheric Ozone Layer offers one example in which states must separately join both the Framework Convention on the Ozone Layer and the Protocol uh, to become a party uh, to the Protocol. Amendments that states make to an international agreement may also need to be separately ratified by states. In many other cases, though, the states party to an agreement have adopted annexes or protocols that go into effect immediately and don't require states to ratify them. For example, the Great Lakes Water Quality Agreement between Canada and the United States drew up an annex which covered groundwater pollution to the Great Lakes and a 2012 protocol extending the agreement's coverage to include concerns about uh, climate change. Now, one of the challenges facing international agreements as a source of environmental law 
is that scientific knowledge about the problem may rapidly change and there may be considerable scientific uncertainty underlying it. How do we ensure that agreements can be flexible enough or efficiently, up, efficiently updated to respond to changes in scientific knowledge and understanding? To be sure, annexes and lists offer one option. Similarly, when states meet during the regular conference of the parties, they take decisions which may be responsive to these concerns. But still another structural option is to provide in the agreement for regular scientific assessments or reviews, scientific advisory bodies, or in the case of climate change and the Paris 2015 agreement, a global stock take of implementation by states in five years. So international environmental agreements are a major source of international environmental law. The second source listed by the International Court of Justice statute is customary international law. Customary international law consists of rules that are derived from the practice of states which are undertaken by states in the belief that they are binding. The practice of states includes the acts of official organs of the state, parliamentary, executive, and judicial. The customary rules may be universal, regional, or otherwise restricted geographically. Unfortunately, there is no authoritative list of customary international law rules. Customary international law is important, though, in international environmental law. For example, the fundamental obligation in this field of law is the responsibility of states to, quote, ensure that activities within their jurisdiction or control do not cause damage to the environment of other states or of areas beyond the limits of national jurisdiction, unquote. This is then binding on all states. Moreover, obligations to give notice to other states of activities that may cause transboundary harm, to consult with those affected and to prepare environmental impact assessments if there is a risk of transboundary harm, have been recognized as general rules of international law. And these are elaborated later in the next two lectures addressing principles of international environmental law. The third source in the International Court of Justice statute is general principles of law. What does the term general principles of law mean? Today, this is generally taken to refer to general principles of law recognized by organized legal systems. General principles can be invoked as a sufficient basis by themselves or to fill gaps in the law. They can be used to interpret existing legal provisions or to substantiate the existence of rules of customary international law. They have been used as the basis for the development of new rights and obligations 
and have become what Professor Dr. Rudiger Wolfram has called, quote, the motor of a progressive development of international law, unquote. As with customary international law, there is no authoritative list of general principles. Some principles, such as good faith, one of the basic uh, principles, have clear origins in the organized legal systems of the world and are used in judging implementation of particular legal obligations. Others, such as the principle of intergenerational equity, are rooted in the world's civilizations and in the concept of equity. General principles can represent norms in our kaleidoscopic world, and they can provide a unifying force in the midst of rapid change and changing coalitions of actors. International Court of Judge, uh, Justice Judge Antonio Consado Trindade has argued that a new use gentium per humankind has developed. Euskentium speaks to the obligations and rights that we have as members of humankind, which has become especially relevant for the Anthropocene epic. If our environment is a planetary trust, we can then argue that we have such obligations to each other and to future generations and rights as beneficiaries in the trust. All of these sources of international environmental law, of which I have spoken, are binding sources, or sources which are binding upon states. I now want to turn to non-binding legal instruments. The term refers to the instruments themselves, which are not legally binding. They may de be defined as Agreements which contain political or moral commitments, but which are not intended to create legal rights and obligations. These are frequently referred to as soft law. They obtain their force because there's an expectation that states will comply with them even if they are not required to do so. They are particularly relevant in international environmental law. Let's look at some important examples. The Stockholm Declaration on the Human Environment. The Rio Declaration on Environment and Development. The United Nations General Assembly Resolutions on Drift Net Fishing and the human right, to water, a human right to Water and Sanitation. Other non-legally binding instruments take the form of charters, resolutions, uh, decisions, documents issued by states at conferences of states' parties to treaties, decisions of international organizations. In 1992, which is 30 years ago, a list of binding agreements and non-binding legal instruments concerned with the environment already included more than 900 items. So why do states negotiate non-binding, what I call non-binding legal instruments? 
Sometimes it's because it would not be possible to reach a binding agreement, especially one containing precise legal obligations, or to convince a state's Congress or Parliament to ratify such an agreement. Sometimes it's because new problems need to be addressed quickly. Non-binding legal instruments can provide greater flexibility so that states may change their behavior faster and more easily. Moreover, the costs of negotiating such instruments are usually considerably less than for binding agreements. The soft law instruments can convey important signals about how states and others are expected to act. Non-binding legal instruments are increasingly used not only in international environmental law, but in other areas of public international law, uh, such as finance. Now, sometimes the soft law instruments have led to binding agreements. For example, the United Nations Environment Program London Guidelines for the Exchange of Information in Chemicals and International Trade and the United Nations Food and Agricultural Organization International Code of Conduct on the Distribution and Use of Pesticides laid the basis for the subsequent binding agreement, namely, the Convention for the Application of Prior Informed Consent Procedure for Certain Hazardous Chemicals and Pesticides in international trade. The soft law in instruments laid the basis for the binding agreement. Similarly, United Nations General Assembly resolutions have often laid the basis for subsequent binding agreements, with two major examples being the Law of the Sea Convention and the Outer Space Treaty. Now, many would argue that soft law cannot replace hard law, meaning binding law, and indeed that soft law needs the support of hard law or of a hard law framework to be effective. Some argue that soft law is a second best option and useful only when hard law is not available. Still others say, that soft law may be deliberately used to undermine and change hard law rules. Certainly, hard law in the form of international agreements remains essential. But in the rapidly changing environment of the Anthropocene, we see that soft law instruments have an important and growing role. Now, one must always ask about compliance, both with binding agreements and with soft law or non-binding legal instruments. But research into compliance with non-binding legal instruments, both in the environmental area and other areas of public international law, has indicated that compliance may be as strong under certain conditions as with binding agreements. One element that especially promotes compliance is an obligation to report to others on measures that have been taken to implement the non-binding obligations.
So do we have an example of how soft law works? Developments in the Arctic and the Antarctic regions illustrate the role of non-binding legal instruments. Let's turn first to the Arctic. In the Arctic, experience shows that non-binding legal instruments can be effective and may even lead to the negotiation of binding agreements. When concern first rose, arose about the Arctic, the Arctic states signed the Arctic Environmental Protection Strategy in 1991 and then in 1993 adopted the Nuke Declaration on Environment Development in the Arctic, both non-binding. Although there were loud calls for a binding agreement at that time, both resulting instruments were non-binding. In 1996, states signed a declaration, again a non-binding legal instrument, establishing the Arctic Council, which is an intergovernmental institution. Thus, by using a non-legally binding instrument, states were able to move forward through the Arctic Council to address new challenges in the region. The expanse continues as some non-Arctic states now have observer status in the Council, as do certain native indigenous groups in the Arctic. Now the Arctic Council has created six working groups to address various environmental issues. And each working group has created special environmental protection programs. Working groups have also created non-binding legal instruments, soft law, such as the Alta Declaration on Environmental Impact Assessment in the Arctic. Notably, they have also concluded three binding international agreements. The Agreement on Cooperation on Aeronautical and Marine Research and Rescue in the Arctic, the Agreement on Cooperation and Marine Pollution Preparedness and Response in the Arctic, and the Agreement on Enhancing International Arctic Scientific Cooperation. Moreover, the Arctic states operated, operate within a fragmented field of separate binding international treaties that pertain to the Arctic, which includes the Law of the Sea Convention. To date, they have not seen the need to develop a new comprehensive international agreement to govern the Arctic. This situation in the Arctic contrasts with Antarctica, where a 1959 comprehensive Antarctic treaty governs the area of Antarctic, Antarctica. The treaty is complemented by a subsequent protocol on environmental protection, agreed measures for conservation of Antarctic fauna and flora, and two subsequent binding conventions addressing the conservation of Antarctic seals and the conservation of Arctic marine living resources. The states also negotiated, negotiated a convention for Antarctic mineral resources, but it never went into effect because it was premature and it's been abandoned. And now if we turn to outer space, 
non-binding legal instruments are also relevant to states' management of the growing problem of debris in outer space. So we have two levels of sources of international law. The binding sources of international law, as articulated by the International Court of Justice statute. The soft law instruments are non-binding legal instruments. And I would argue that there is a third layer of sources of international environmental law, namely the individual voluntary commitments by states. Now, in public international law, states always possess the authority as national sovereigns to make voluntary commitments to address international environmental problems. In practice, states have been reluctant to undertake such commitments unless other states do the same. Hence, they have preferred binding agreements or soft law that represents a consensus, at least, on specific obligations and issues. However, a new tier of international legal instruments seems to be emerging, namely, a state's own voluntary individualized commitment to undertake certain actions. The state itself determines the details of the commitments. They are not dictated by detailed requirements applicable to everyone, though they may be taken pursuant to a commonly agreed goal or objective among the states. These actions, while in a sense unilateral in nature, may still bind the state making them. Let's turn to an example. Prior to the 2015 Agreement on Climate Change, 2015 Paris Agreement on Climate Change, states made voluntary individualized commitments to control greenhouse gases and to take individualized measures to promote sustainability, even in the absence of an obligation to do so. At the 2009 Copenhagen Conference of Parties of States that were parties to the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change, States negotiated but then declined to adopt the Copenhagen Accord by which states would commit to reducing greenhouse gases. Nonetheless, more than 140 countries, representing about 87% of global greenhouse gas emissions, engaged with the Accord and submitted individualized targets for reducing emissions. At the next conference of the parties to the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change, which took place in Cancun, Mexico, states did not renounce these commitments, but rather they affirmed them. And these laid a basis for the 2015 Paris Agreement. Under the Paris Agreement, states have agreed to the common goal of limiting the warming of the earth to, quote, well below 2 degrees centigrade and preferably 1.5 degrees centigrade." Unquote. The agreement leaves each state to determine its own nationally determined contribution for reducing emissions of greenhouse gases. 
they are not required to meet a specific target of doing so or a timetable for doing so, known as a target and timetable, as in the Montreal Protocol for, for the protection of the ozone layer, or to comply with specific emission standards. This strategy may presage future use of individualized commitments by states to address common environmental problems in which the dangers of inaction are far too severe to wait for a formal consensus on a precise requirement applicable to all states regarding the measures that they have to take, such as common targets and timetables for reducing pollutants. Now, individualized voluntary commitments may be especially useful for states to address the problem when speed is of the essence, to give flexibility in the context of a binding agreement, to enable different commitments by states specified and tailored, rather, to their specific conditions, or to help build a consensus for action when the consequences of not acting are significant and even extremely dangerous. The jurisprudence of the Permanent Court of Justice and the subsequent International Court of Justice has established that unilateral statements by states can be binding. For example, in the 1933 dispute between Denmark and Norway over Eastern Greenland, the Permanent Court of International Justice found Norway's statement by its Minister of Foreign Affairs, that has been called the Island Declaration, to be a binding unilateral statement that Norway would not make any difficulty in the settlement of a question related to Eastern Greenland. In the nuclear test cases before the International Court of Justice, the court there found that the French government's statement that it would not conduct any additional tests in the South Pacific to be binding upon France, and hence a basis for dismissing the case at the International Court of Justice. Other tribunals have also held unilateral statements to be binding, including the World Trade Organization's dispute settlement body. We now turn to non-governmental organizations, private sector, and other actors that put forward voluntary individualized commitments and contribute to the development of international environmental law. These instruments may be negotiated by consensus and be non-binding, or they may take the form of individualized commitments pursuant to common goal, such as sustainable development. The global United Nations or the, the United Nations Global Compact, which is a soft law instrument, offers an example targeting the private sector. The compact sets forth ten guiding principles, including three that address human rights and environmental issues, and the world's major companies are signatories to the compact. If we turn to the individualized voluntary commitments, they have become especially prevalent and useful 
in the quest for sustainable development. The report of the Rio Plus 20 conference in 2012, entitled The Future We Want, explicitly endorsed the initiative of individualized voluntary commitments in the private sector for sustainable development. A growing number of international initiatives solicit and publish voluntary commitments to sustainable development by states and non-governmental entities. Most have their own registries. Several registries aggregate and publish commitments from multiple initiatives. These include the UN Sustainable Development Knowledge Platform, established as part of the 2012 Rio Plus 20 preparations, the Sustainable Energy for All initiative established by the United Nations Secretary General as part of the 2012 Year of Sustainable Energy, the Corporate Echo Forum, in which large companies publish commitments to sustainability, and the Natural Resources Defense Council's Cloud of Commitments, which provides an international registry that aggregates commitments from various initiatives. Now, such sites list commitments, but they generally do not yet gather data on implementation and compliance with them. We need data on whether the commitments are in fact being followed. This means reporting on implementation by those making the commitments and monitoring of whether the commitments are being met. Advances in information technology should make it easier to track compliance with individualized voluntary commitments and to assess their effectiveness in contributing to sustainable development. This is essential. If we're going to ensure that individualized voluntary commitments, whether by governments, private sector, even individuals, do not become a fig leaf or a cover for no action, there is a need for accountability for complying with the individualized voluntary commitments. One of the most significant problems with such commitments made in the absence of a negotiated consensus is that they may not be articulated in formats that are compatible with each other or are not comparable. The data, for example, may not be standardized or sufficiently comparable for assessing the overall advancement toward a stated goal. Monitoring may be difficult. Since there may be hundreds or thousands of commitments in different formats and with different content, it'll be challenging to monitor compliance with them. Platforms that compile and aggregate individual commitments and make the commitments in their implementation readily accessible online are important for effective international environmental law. The private sector is also beginning to address issues raised by production through international supply chains. These include issues such as environmental conditions, workplace safety, employee health. These efforts can take different forms principles, standards and certification of compliance with the standards, self-reporting of actions, 
or adoption of certain processes or practices. Non-governmental organizations have also adopted standards for producers and systems of certification for fulfilling the standards. Examples? Fair trade certified labels. Labels for sustainable forestry and sustainable fisheries. And they've also adopted some accountability standards for their own work. Non-governmental organizations and groups of jurists have also become an important source of soft law instruments relevant for a range of international environmental problems. I refer in, here in particular to the work of the International Law Association uh, with the New Delhi Declaration on the Environment and the, the past declarations and reports dealing with freshwater resources starting with Helsinki, uh, Seoul, and Berlin. And we've had the development of a global pact for the environment uh, in preparation for uh, the 50th anniversary of the Stockholm Conference on the Human Environment. Now, all of these instruments, I think, contribute to the progressive development of international environmental law. Their reach may be global, regional, local. But in a kaleidoscopic world, commitments by the private sector, non-governmental organizations, informal groups, communities, and individuals provide important instruments for addressing international environmental issues. The commitments are important because they can be initiated quickly, at least in theory, and can be adapted to local practices and cultures. They should be able to draw upon best practices and to build good reputations for those undertaking them. They can provide space for cooperative efforts. They do not, however, offer a substitute for states engaging in, in negotiating binding legal instruments or important soft law instruments. So as discussed in this lecture, we now have an increasing array of sources of international environmental law. Now we may ask whether this is a very healthy example of letting many flowers bloom, or whether proliferation of instruments may invite needless administrative costs, foster congestion, or even chaos. I would argue it is very good development because we need to mobilize all states, all private sector actors, all communities, and even all individuals to address the increasingly serious environmental, international environmental problems. We need to ensure that the actions we take, though, are consistent with shared values and norms. This is especially critical in the kaleidoscopic world. Thank you.